Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 8 this evening. Lord willing, we'll just kind of look through the 8th chapter together as we then will probably break off there and enter back into some worship and celebrate communion together this evening. We're in the midst of one of Moses' series of sermons preparing the younger generation before they enter into the promised land. And this 8th chapter really does seem to have the focus and emphasis of not forgetting what God has done, but instead making an effort to remember, to keep in remembrance and acknowledge the hand of the Lord, the work of God, the blessing of God in our lives. And even as Israel was to remember that in a sense, in a very tangible way, you and I should do much the same really in a spiritual way in our lives as well. So look with me beginning in verse one as Moses just continues speaking to them as he already has been uh, in the prior chapter. He says to them, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord God swore to your fathers. So again, notice obeying, observing what is commanded, not only that it would bring opportunity and it would bring access and certainly obedience does do that obedience grants to us one of the benefits of it is it it opens doors for us it creates opportunities because God honors obedience in the same way that uh, God is not going to bless our disobedience but when we honor the Lord and we obey him that leads to the opportunities that God has for us to go in to possess, to experience the fullness of the blessings of God, the work of his spirit, even as for them it was to inherit a land physically and tangibly, and not only that they may experience it in Gwyn, but he said that you may multiply, that the blessing of God, his flourishing and the prosperity that he wanted to bring upon them, they could experience the more they would honor and obey the Lord in their lives. And then verse 2, he then says to them, and you shall remember, I have that circled in my Bible because that shows up a few times in these chapters ahead. God continues to call them to remembrance, to remember the Lord their God and what he had done for them and to not forget or to set aside uh, their awareness of what God had done for them. So he says, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness, notice, to humble you and to test you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So Moses here reminds them as they look back upon the past 40 years, that season as they journeyed through the wilderness during that time, as God first led them out of Egypt and then directed them through different territories and they experienced the hand of God in so many different ways in a very difficult spot in a, a desert-like area, dry and arid climate in the Palestinian territory that they were in there through a wilderness area. And he says, remember, in other words, again, call to remembrance. Don't allow it to, to slip your mind. Keep it in the forefront of your remembrance. He says, how, verse 2, the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years there in the wilderness. He wants them to remember how God directed their steps even in, look at it there, even in the wilderness season, in the struggles, the hardships that they endured. And the reason is because through the midst of that time, God was maturing them. 
God was developing them. And many times God will use the times of wilderness in our lives. God will use difficulties and seasons of hardship as opportunities to train and to mold us. And again, it's not always because we have created a problem for ourselves or that something is wrong that we're going through a hard time. There are legitimate times when God seems to use, the Bible does indicate with many different individuals, uh, that God will allow his servants to be in a wilderness season, to be in a time of hardship. You know, David, after the call of God was upon his life, he was anointed to be king, and then he spent the next uh, number of years uh, struggling, uh, wandering out in remote areas, hiding out in caves, running from Saul, dealing with difficulties, because what God was doing was God was developing him as the man that he was supposed to be, so that when he ascended to the throne, he would be prepared to handle everything that God had for him on the horizon and in the future. And that was that preparatory work of cultivating David and getting him ready. Elijah, at a point in his time, was sent out to the brook Cherith, where there he was for a season of time in a hard area where it says that he was drinking from the brook and ravens were coming and bringing his food day by day. He was dependent upon these birds to come and drop off his food. And just, again, in a difficult season of his life, but there God in the midst of that kind of having him in the crucible preparing him Moses himself we saw spent 40 years on the backside of the wilderness Jesus himself was driven by the spirit out into the wilderness uh, to go through a time of temptation so we see this pattern in the word of God where at times the Lord will allow us and in the midst of that sometimes we think that the Lord has maybe retracted from us because we're going through a hardship. Or we think maybe that in the wilderness somehow God sort of lost contact with what's going on. And the reality is, just look what verse 2, he says, you remember God was leading you. God led you through all of that, even though you had to journey through it. And, you know, I don't like it any more than the next person. I don't think any one of us prefers or, you know, chooses. Uh, we'd much rather take the, the correspondence course on wilderness training and hardship and desert seasons. We'd much rather do that than have to actually do the lab work uh, and walk it out and experience the process. But he says, remember in the midst of that, that God was leading you. God led you. And, you know, I think many of us here this evening, you can look back in your life and maybe there was a time when it was hard and it was challenging, maybe some season you went through or some difficult circumstance. But you would have to say in hindsight as you look back, but you know what? I can totally see how God was leading in that and how Lord, the Lord led along each step of the way and he was directly involved and his hand was evident and at times he would show himself and how he was ordering my steps. And so Moses says, remember, God led you, he says, all the way in the wilderness and notice what he was doing. He says throughout that time that he was leading you, he said he also was using that to humble you, he says, verse 2, and to test you that you may know, he says, what was, whether it was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, whether you would be obedient or disobedient when the pressure was on, when it was difficult to do the right thing, when it was hard to honor the Lord and to trust him. So we see here that some of what God was doing in this time in their lives with Israel was he was purging out pride from them. In its various different forms, he says he was using that time as he led you through the wilderness he says, to humble you and to test you. 
you know, that is a necessary thing in all of our lives because the bottom line is whether it's the nation of Israel, each person individually or who they were collectively, by nature, we are a very prideful people. It's often been said before, I know I've said it before, but it's worth repeating, you know, pride is like the mother of all sins. <laughs> if you've ever noticed that before, you know, so often it's human pride in its many different distorted forms that it comes out of us that tends to be the thing that gives birth to a lot of the other sinful, foolish things that we do. It's our own pride that makes us maybe react in a certain situation the way that we do wrongly. It's our own pride that makes us get you know, upset or bent out of shape towards another person or the way they treated us. Or it's our own pride that makes us you know, behave in a way or speak in a way that really isn't becoming of the Lord or that we know that we shouldn't, whether it's drawing attention to ourselves or, or maybe you know, reacting to someone to come to our own defense or whatever it may be. But so many times our pride is such a nemesis and it is a self-destructive quality within all of us and it's a self-destructive quality in any collective group of people or nation as well. So he says, the Lord was using that time in the wilderness to humble you, to drive and to purge pride in its many forms out of your life to bring humility uh, and that's why the Bible says that God has to resist the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And we see in this chapter, God wants to be gracious to his people. He's going to say in this chapter a few times that he wanted to bring you into a good land that he has ultimately, he's going to say, verse 16, to do you good in the end. God wants to do good for us. God wants to be gracious to us, but he needs to make sure that we are able to handle that in our lives. And so at times he will allow us to be humbled and to be tested, uh, letting us be tested through situations, even as they dealt with each experience. Every time they dealt with something, God was allowing it to test them. It was, it was seeing whether they were going to pass the test or not. He says here, to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would obey his commandments or not. And as they would go through each situation, whether they came to the Red Sea and the pressure was on, to, were they going to trust the Lord? Or they were they going to freak out when they came to different locations like Mara and other spots where maybe the water was bitter and they had nothing to drink. Were they going to trust the Lord or were they going to start complaining against God and, and, and you know, saying we need to find somebody else and go back to Egypt, find us a new leader. And God just brought us out of here to kill us. And, and every time, you know, whether it was they were hungry or they were thirsty or they, you know, dealing with something so many times in the midst of that, they were being tested, they were being proved, they were exams, if you were, the different situations and circumstances to see how they were going to handle them, to truly see what their response toward God would be and really to reveal the true reality of their inward spiritual state. On the, on the scale of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth, those situations and circumstances that they faced in the wilderness were really the different tests along the way to reveal where they were at. And again, keep in mind, it wasn't to reveal to God where they were at. You know, we read that, you know, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You know, God knows all things. The Bible says that before a word is on our tongue, God knows it completely. He sees our thoughts from afar in the pre-thunk, if that's a word, state, the idea is. You know, before you even think something, as a situation's unfolding, 
the reality is, is even before that, you know, electrical synapse of all that happens in the nerve endings of our brains, God already knows in advance when something's about to happen. He goes, well, I know exactly what Chris is going to think when this happens. I already know before the thought even comes. It's not when the thought comes. We think, well, God knows my thought. He knows before the thought comes what we're even going to think in each situation and how we're going to respond or what. So God knows us intimately and completely. The problem is, is we don't really know ourselves. In fact, the Bible says, Jeremiah, that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Even before our heart is desperately wicked, even more than that, it's deceitful above all things. And so often we are self-deceived and we don't really know the condition of our heart. So God allows us at times to be squeezed so that we might know where we really are at spiritually and allow us to kind of come to terms again with, oh, this is really where I'm at right now. I didn't realize I was still that selfish. I didn't realize I was still that proud sometimes. I didn't realize I was still that impatient sometimes. I didn't realize that, boy, I actually am pretty doubtful still. I didn't realize that, wow, that I wouldn't trust the Lord in that situation or that I would start to complain and become critical in that situation. Or, you know, and and it's, it's kind of like a sponge. You know, you, when you, you see a sponge sitting there uh, near the sink or whatever and you can tell it's wet and you know there's something in it, but you don't know what's in it. It could be Kool-Aid. It could be milk. It could be water with soap in it. And the only way you really know what's in the sponge is if you grab it and you squeeze it. And when you squeeze it, then you see what comes out of it. You know, what's often been said before, Christians are a lot like tea bags. You don't really know what flavor they are until you put them in hot water. And there's a lot of great truth to that. You know, sometimes that's when the reality comes out. And a lot of times, again, it's not to prove to the Lord where we're at. It's to reveal to us where we're at, that we might see where we're at, to be aware in some ways and to prove our own spiritual state. And that's what would happen with Israel. They'd go through those things and it would become manifest the way they would respond. And so often they unfortunately were failing the test, not trusting God, disobeying, complaining against God, complaining against Moses. And in so many ways, again, just sort of proving and verifying through their actions towards God that God was completely just in the way he would deal with them because they would evidence exactly where they really were. It's really is, let's be honest, isn't it really easy to talk a lot of great talk spiritually? You know, the, the farther you walk with the Lord, the more you know the Bible, it gets easy to just quote Bible verses and when you're going through something, I can counsel you and tell you all the right scriptures and say all the right things. But living it out and living it out when the pressure comes on and we're in the midst of the wilderness, that's the real test. That's the real test, and often that tells us a lot about ourselves. So uh, God here says, remember, he says, I was leading you through that wilderness. It was a time to humble you, to test you, to let you know what was in your heart, whether you would keep my commandments or not. Verse 3, Moses says, so he, notice, humbled you and allowed you to hunger and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers knew, the idea was something that had never happened before, that he might make you know, verse 3, that man shall not live by bread alone. That should sound familiar. Remember, Jesus quotes that in his temptation with Satan. But that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So again, notice verse 3. Again, the emphasis, he humbled you. This, in essence, is what one of the benefits God's trying to say of that wilderness season is it was a time that God was using to humble you. God was allowing, literally, 
the hardship, God was allowing the hunger, God was allowing the lack and the struggle, and God was not only allowing it, in a sense, God was using it for their benefit to teach them things here. It says, he humbled you and he allowed you to hunger purposely. Why? That he might then feed you with that manna which they had never experienced before. That Remember we saw the miraculous manna back in the book of Exodus where every morning they would get up and like dew that was like coriander seed with honey, this sort of, the Bible calls it in the Psalms, angel's food, this miraculous food that was only there for the day. They could only eat enough for the day. They could not store it up for tomorrow. So every day they had to be dependent upon God and wake up in the morning and trust that the provision of God would be there again and go out and collect this manna and partake of it. It would nourish them for the day, but they couldn't store it up. They couldn't hoard it. They had to responsibly go out and gather it every morning. They had to believe that God would supply it for the next day. And again, this was to show them his provision and his power. So he says, God allowed you to lack that he might show you that he could provide. How else would you know he could provide? If you've got a storehouse, it's kind of hard to, to sometimes figure that out. You know, the Bible says that in 1 Timothy 6 that we shouldn't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And if you're blessed enough to have a surplus, you realize it's, you know, it's sometimes hard to realize what does it really mean to trust God when if you have a surplus, you can just say, well, I'll, oh, I'll just get more out of that account over there. And that's a difficult thing. You know, I'm not trying to say it's a blessing thing to be poor and, you know, so sad for those who are rich. I mean, there are benefits to both. But the Bible says even if there's wealth not to trust in uncertain riches, because the Bible says that riches are like wings. They can just, you know, they can fly away rather quickly. You know, economies can crash. Stock markets can start tanking real fast. And all of a sudden, wealth can disappear as quickly as it can come. So the Bible says, don't trust in those uncertain riches. Learn to trust in the living God as your source and provider. And that is what Israel was learning. And he says, God actually allowed you to hunger that he might feed you with manna each and every day so that you may know that you might come to learn and to understand that man doesn't live just by physical bread alone, but instead he lives, he's sustained and kept instead by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God was teaching them that he would remain faithful and keep his promises to supply because God told them as they were in the wilderness, keep in mind, they were journeying and traveling. They were in a situation where they could, you know, plant crops and harvest food. They were in a wilderness. They were in a desert. So it was very difficult to be sustained that many people as a traveling caravan in the middle of a desert. So they needed to trust God's provision and God told them, I will provide for you. I will supply this manna every day for you. God gave them his promise. And then what did God do? He kept it. And he kept doing it day after day after day after day. I mean, Take this into consideration. In essence, every night when they went to sleep in Israel, they were again had completely depleted everything that they needed to survive and they were in the threat once again of starvation. If God didn't provide manna the next morning, they were on the brink of starvation. Every night when they went to bed, they went to bed having to believe, you know what? I don't know how we're eating tomorrow unless God provides unless God supplies and God had them in this place so that they might learn this incredible lesson that day by day God would honor his word 
God would keep his promise, that they would learn that life's about more than just bread. It's about more than just physical things. It's about more than just you being able to do what you can. God was teaching them, your greatest resource is me. I'm your greatest resource. And because I have given you my word from my mouth to declare to you, I will provide for you. I will make sure that you have what you need to sustain you. God was teaching them, I'm your greatest resource. Not what you can do, what you can accomplish, what you have stored up. I'm your supplier, I'm your provider, and life was about more than just the material things of surviving and acquiring stuff. And the greater issues of life instead were learning lessons about God. And that's what they were learning. Learning lessons like that they would live and get by, not based upon what they could do in the wilderness or what they could obtain, but instead off of the very decision that God said, I will do this and I will honor my word. And I will provide for you. So they lived not by the physical bread, but they lived by the determinant word of God saying, you will be sustained. You will be provided for. And learning that God's word had more value even than physical and tangible things. You know, these are just great lessons because many times that's the things that God is wanting to teach us in this life. That we would learn that God is our greatest resource. That he's our greatest resource. He's our greatest asset. And it does not matter what things look like at times circumstantially, physically. The Lord is not limited. The Lord can find a way. And the Lord has promised you know, that he'll meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And that he wants us to learn that, to experience that. And sometimes we have to be in certain places and be taken through certain things to actually prove that out. To be able to discover that. And the Lord, I think, so often is as well wanting to teach us continuously, even as Christians, that life is truly about more than just bread. It's about more than just the, you know, the, the everyday, tangible, physical, material things of this world. And, and that's important because as we live in a tangible, physical world and we're trying to eke a living out of this life, so often it's so easy to get caught up in the rat race of everyday you know, kind of experiences where we think all that life is really about is about making the next buck. And it's about making sure we got enough bread in the bank and enough bread in the cupboards. And so life becomes sort of consumed by this reality of, I got to make a little more bread. And if I make a little more bread, then my family be a little more happy. And if I make, I gotta, that guy's making more bread, so I got to, I got to, my bread box isn't as big as his bread box. And all of a sudden we get caught up in this reality thinking that life's all about that. And sometimes the Lord wants to bring us back to this realization. Look, that's not what life's about. Yes, that's a part of life. And God sustains us. But even in relation to the physical things, Matthew 6, Jesus said, Look, your father knows what you need even before you ask for it. And he takes care of the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or even store away in barns. And your father takes care of them. Yes, we're responsible. We, we work hard. We, we do things that we should and realize that is a part of the process. But we realize that Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, tangible, physical, bread, what do you eat, what do you wear? Jesus says, that'll be added to you. The priority upon the spirits of realizing life is more about learning lessons about God, his word, getting to know him, being sustained by his word to us and his assurance of our relationship with him 
that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And remember, Jesus quoted that in the temptation there in relation to that very thing. Do for yourself, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus, I don't have to turn these stones to bread. Yeah, I could, but I don't have to. Instead, I live by what my father says. That means more to me what God says in his word than anything of physical or earthly fulfillment. Verse 4, look, he then goes on to tell them, and your garments, interesting verse, your garments did not wear out on you. How long? Forty years. Nor did your feet swell, your foot swell, these forty years. So I mean, you want to talk about, again, God's supernatural and miraculous preservation at work among them? to keep things healthy, their robes, their garments, again, as they wandered through an arid desert climate, typically, you know, you had one garment, that was it, for 40 years, made getting dressed very simple in the morning. <laughs> Nobody was late to synagogue, you didn't have to stand in front of the closet for, you know, a few hours, try a few different ones on, go and check with your sisters, you know, what do you think, this booty or this high boot, or I mean, you just, you didn't have to do that kind of stuff. You had one garment, that was it. They had one garment. The thing lasted 40 years. I mean, for somebody like myself as a husband and a father, yes, 40 years. I don't have to shop. I don't have to follow people around a mall. And I don't have to get a new item. I just, this is, I mean, this is what I call budget, economical, God living. This is great. 40 years. Now, you know, for, for others, that would be absolute torture. You know, 40 years. I mean, can I get a new robe? Well, it looks good still. It may not be in style still after 10, 15, 20 years, but, but it worked. For 40 years straight, God preserved. I mean, but again, sometimes we think, oh, Lord, this is all I have. Lord, all I have is this one vehicle, and it's a clunker at that. Look, God can preserve it for four more years. That's what he wants to do. He can miraculously. He preserved their garments. That wasn't natural. That was supernatural. He kept the seams from falling apart. He kept it from wearing out. God can preserve. God can sustain. He can miraculously do these things. He kept their health, their feet from swelling. And interesting, one commentator I read pointed out that, you know, that it's been proven before through studies that one of the symptoms of malnutrition is that the feet swell, which comes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, that manna, that they got from heaven for 40 years. Apparently, it was balanced in the diet of its nutrients and apparently what was supplied in it in such a way, scientifically, you could uh, contribute that to, that that was a part of the contribution to why nobody had swelling feet because they weren't malnourished. God took care of them. Again, they complained about it. No, man, it's just plain. But, but God balanced it and it was what they needed to sufficiently take care of them. So again, just the preservation of the hand of God. Verse 5, he says, And you know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, or your translation may say disciplines his son, so the Lord your God chastens or disciplines you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So notice, Again, as you read chastening or discipline, don't always just think of that in a negative connotation, you know, God's spanking, God's, you know, bringing out the, the rod of chastening. You know, any parent understands who has children and you love your children, the discipline chastening process is not just because you get pleasure of waiting till they step out of line and being able to have the freedom to crack somebody. That's, that's not the heart of a father. And when the Bible says that God chastens, God disciplines, yes, there's, a, there's an aspect of that involves 
correction. Interesting, the terminology that's used there, chasten or discipline, is a term that means uh, all that is necessary to invest in proper education. And when you're bringing someone to a proper education, there are a lot of different contributing things. There's instruction. There's training. There's also, yes, at times, rebuking and correcting is needed, but the whole purpose of proper education is to develop overall maturity. And, and this is the idea spiritually, is God is seeking to invest in his children for their development, their overall development, that they might come to a place of greater character, greater spiritual depth and maturity. God was raising and cultivating character in the children of Israel through that wilderness experience in the same way that God does that for us. God chastens and is raising children and disciplines and works in our lives like a father does with his children. Why? Because a father wants to see his child become the best, most well-rounded individual that will succeed and do well. That's the whole purpose of it, of the training, the educating, the instructing. And again, if they erred or they became out of line, yeah, God in his love would correct them and redirect them, but it was for their good. But there was a whole process involved. Interesting, the Bible says to us in a similar way, this in Hebrews 12, let me just read it to you from a New Testament perspective. For you and I as a child of God, proving our legitimacy, that we're genuinely children of God. It says, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise or hate the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges, spanks, every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. The idea is if the hand of God at times doesn't go to the posterior of your spiritual life on occasion, he's saying maybe God's hand isn't genuinely involved in your life. Again, I don't spank the neighbor's children. I spank my own children because that's my right and my responsibility. Well, I don't spank them anymore at this day. <laughs> They're older now, you know that. but I did. I wasn't an anti-spanker. I trust you. Trust me on that one. But you don't spank the neighbor's children. You spank, you discipline, you chasten, you raise, you bring correction to the lives of your own children because you realize the rod and the, and, and the, the corrective, that brings reproof. And the Bible says the rod of correction drives foolishness out of a child. Foolishness, the Bible says, is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it out of them. It drives it far from them. And it's a part of the training and the parenting process. And the Bible says, this is one of the testaments that you're truly a child of God. You don't get away with stuff anymore. Maybe you used to be able to do stuff and get away with it, but now you do something and God's on you like that, it seems. And he says, hey, praise the Lord, that means you're genuinely born again because you're one of God's children. So he works in your life that, again, we may err or make a mistake, but because he cares about your development and your condition, he shows it right away to get real quickly involved to reprove or to correct. And, and God allows you maybe like, you know, in, in certain ways to go through certain things where you go, Lord, this is really humbling me. This is really testing me. This is what he, and he says, right, because you're my child. I'm developing you. I'm growing you. I'm maturing you. I'm educating you in a good way. Verse 7, he says, For the Lord your God is bringing you, notice, into a good land, a land of brooks of water, 
of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills. Imagine what that was like after having been in a desert for so many years now. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. So again, a very productive, fruitful land. These were many blessings and staples in the ancient diet there in that day. A land in which you will eat bread, he says, without scarcity in which you will lack nothing, abundant provision, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, so where they could be very productive to get you know, tools and instruments and farming implements. There was great you know, minerals and types of ores that were available in that territory. And verse 7 through 9 is describing to them how God had now brought them to this time where he was about to bring them into a season of great blessing and prosperity. Yes, they went through a hard time, 40 years in the wilderness, being tested and humbled, but the Lord says, now the Lord is bringing you into a good land. He's about to bring you into a time of great blessing and great prosperity where they would not need to sort of you know, work and produce and strive. Instead, they were going to inherit great abundance. They were going to inherit great fruitful blessing. And in a sense, prosperity very shortly for Israel, they were going to go from being in the wilderness struggling to basically sort of almost overnight, they were going to inherit incredible prosperity. And all of a sudden, like a switch, it was going to transition and they were going to go from a very hard time and season to a very fruitful prosperous time as they were brought into this good land where they would have incredible success and prosperity in a way they had never experienced before and it was all part of the good hand of God it was something God wanted to do with them the Bible says God takes us through different seasons there's there's a time and a purpose for every season under heaven God takes us through the valley of the shadow of death but God also leads us in the green pastures and leads us beside still waters and these are all a part of the plans and purposes of God. Notice, it is the Lord's desire to bring his people, it says, verse 7 there, into a good land. And that good land was going to be satisfying and fruitful and plentiful and productive as you look at what's described there. And again, it pictures so beautifully what the spiritual life is supposed to be for us. God wants to bring us into a good, fruitful productive, satisfying, plentiful spiritual life. He wants to bring us deeper into more abundance and greater fruitfulness into all the good things that God has for you in the spiritual life. Verse 10, he goes on to say, and when you've eaten, so once they experience this great prosperity, when you've eaten and are full, then, he says, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So it would be important for them to take time, Moses reminds them, to consciously be appreciative and to be thankful. Notice he says, when you've eaten and when you're full. So once you begin to experience all the prosperity, once you experience the excess and the abundance, which God is giving to you, he says. You don't have to feel guilty about it. He says, it's from the Lord. It's, it's a time and a season that he wants that. He's bringing you into this. But he says, but when you begin to enjoy it, when you begin to partake of it, and you're full and you're blessed, he says, in the midst of that blessing, make sure that you render praise and appreciation to the one who blessed you. And don't forget that. It keeps the heart healthy and it keeps the perspective proper that in a time of blessing and prosperity that we consciously make sure to say thanks to God and to give to him the appreciation 
for what good things he has done when he accomplishes such in our lives even as he did for them so he says verse 11 again this is the warning now the danger of prosperity as we've talked about before he says beware verse 11 that you do not forget and again it's not an amnesia there as we've said forget means to to set aside to just sort of put aside because something else is more important so he says don't set God aside don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments his judgments and statutes which I command you today lest verse 12 when you've eaten and are full and have built your beautiful houses and you dwell in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied you get a great bonus at work and all that you have is multiplied and when your heart is lifted up you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you notice through that great and terrible wilderness in which you were fiery serpents and scorpions and the thirsty land where there was no water who brought water for you out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with the manna again day by day miraculously sustaining them which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end so here the warning verse 11 through 16 again is the danger of prosperity the danger of success and we've talked about this on occasions before and here there's this warning this exhortation that when success comes and it may when prosperity comes when blessing comes he says in the midst of that as you're enjoying it and you're indulging and all of a sudden wow look at this and we're, we're doing great and we're actually getting ahead now we've built this beautiful house and look at this and we have that and we got now we have two brand new camels instead of this old used camel that was half dead you know and wow and, then, and let me look at all these things that we have. So look when you're enjoying all of that he says, be careful in the midst of that success and prosperity that you don't get so preoccupied with it that you set aside God and you don't have time for God anymore. And it's just a warning of what can happen. And the idea is that they would lose touch with reality of who they were and where they had come from. And the times when it was hard and what God had done for them and how far God had brought. He says, don't forget where you came from. You remember that whole Egypt thing? You remember the times when it was hard and it was difficult and you were having to day by day trust the Lord, but he came through. But he says, don't forget where you all came from to start because that's what keeps us healthy and allows us to properly manage prosperity, to properly manage times of blessing and success. And I'll tell you something. There's nothing more dangerous, nothing more dangerous you know, than being put into a position where there's success, prosperity, blessing, and you're not ready to handle it. You will become a monster. I've met a few. And so sometimes God will allow us to experience challenges and cultivate us and develop us to just keep us balanced in such a way so that we don't forget where we came from. And we don't forget that it was God who did it and how God did it in such a way that, that we, we manage it with a way of proper balance. And we always continue to remember the Lord in the midst of it and say, hey, yeah, look, yeah, God's good. He's blessed. He's blessed. But the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And Paul says, you know, I've learned how to be abased and I've learned how to abound. He says, I've learned in all things to be content, to be full and to be hungry. Again, there's nothing wrong with either. One's not more spiritual than the other. 
God was leading them in the wilderness. God was leading them in the promised land. God was leading them in the struggles. God was leading them in the time of prosperity. What God wanted them to always remember that it was all God. That it was all God and that their perspective would stay proper and that they would learn the lessons that were in store for them. I love the end of verse 16 there, if I can draw your attention to it. Notice, what was the ultimate intention of the Lord? Here's the heart and intent of the Lord to do you good in the end. To do you good in the end. So all of that they went through was to ultimately do them good in the end. And you know what's tonight? I think you should take that to yourself for your own life as a child of God spiritually. Everything the Lord's taken you through, all the processes and circumstances and situations and the ways he works and what he shows you, do you know what his heart and his intention is for you tonight? It's not to ruin you. It's not to make you miserable. It's not to break you down. It's to do you good in the end. To do you good in the end. Hey, how does an athlete that competes, you know, we have the Olympic coming up here in the summer, right? They got to deal with some challenging things to ultimately do good in the end. So part of God doing us good in the end may mean some challenges and things that we go through, but we have to always remember verse 16, there's the ultimate intention and heart of the Lord. He wants to do you good in the end. He has good intentions for you. He has something good in store for you. Why? Because he's a good God. And you just got to believe that by faith. You got to believe by faith when you can't see and put it all together, the pieces in your mind say, Lord, I don't know how, but, but again, as a Christian, Romans 8.28 tells us, therefore, that we know that God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things the bad things you've done, the bad things that happened to you, all the experiences, the good things that every, God somehow masterfully says, That's what, I can take that. Oh, I know, yeah, but I can take that and when I add that to this and this and this and then I, yeah, and I'm going to tweak that over there and I'm going to push that button there and I'm going to pull that string there and it's all going to come together and at the end we're going to go, wow, every good and perfect gift is from above. Ultimately, it works out for the good. And listen, if that good ultimately is to make you more Christ-like and to get you into heaven, then guess what? God did something really good in the end because when you get to heaven, you're not going to care about everything that happened on this earth. And for some people, for some of us on this planet as human beings, sometimes the Lord has to allow us to go through some pretty hard things because that's what it would take to get our attention and make us come to Christ. But that's doing us good in the end. But ultimately, we know that that is the heart of our Father. So he says, beware, be careful that you don't lose perspective in the midst of the prosperity. Look how he concludes a chapter, verse 17. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. I bet no human beings ever said that before. And you shall remember, look at it, that the Lord your God, it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Notice, it's important to remember that even though it wouldn't be as they got into land, miracles, manna from heaven, water coming from rocks, it would all become very normal provision. They would farm crops, they would deal with a productive land, but they had abundant fruitfulness. God you know, gave them a land and it was through very natural means that God provided. In the wilderness, it was miracle after miracle after miracle. When you got miracles happening, you go, wow, that's God. Wow, God provided water right out of a rock. Wow, God sent down food. It fell from the sky, manna from heaven. But how about when you're out there plowing your field, the sweat of your own brow, 
And then you're waiting for the rains to come and you're irrigating your own fields and then you have this abundant crop and you have food on your table. But then you think, well, I mean, but, but I did most of the work there. Because it was through a very natural means. Listen, just because the means is natural doesn't mean God's not in it. God's just as much in it. And this is what God is saying. We have to be careful. He says, don't think that my hand, because he says, remember, it's the Lord who gives you the power, the ability to acquire wealth and success, the idea is. Again, nothing wrong with success. Nothing wrong with wealth. The Bible, people misquote all the time, you know, that money is the root of all evil. You're misquoting the Bible. Money can be used in a very wonderful way if you have a proper perspective. It's an instrument. It's neutral. It's a wonderful servant. It's just a horrible master. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. And our role is to remember, Lord, you've given me the power to make whatever wealth he's given you the power to make. He gave you the strength to get up and go to your job. He gave you the opportunity to have your job. He gives you the skills and capabilities to do that job that you do the way that you do so that you could succeed in that job or maybe to advance in that job or to make a wise decision in business. But, but it's the Lord who gives the power to make wealth and he wants to just be acknowledged as, Lord, that's from you. You've blessed. You've given this knowledge, this education, this business savvy, that skill, the advancement, the opportunity, the strength to get up and work that we would remember that it's him who gives that power. Verse 19, he says, And it shall be, if by any means you again forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So again, the warning that the sin of idolatry, worshiping other gods, or the sin of ignoring and disobeying the voice of the Lord, two times, says here, would result in them being destroyed, being ruined. That God would not show partiality to them, that God would deal with them, even as he had the other nations, he wasn't going to play favorites. But again, the, the point, he's saying, look, stay in right relationship with the Lord. Don't forget what God's done. Don't forget his role and importance and priority in your life because sin ruins and destroys. He says two times it will perish. You know, we look at this and what a great reminder for us. You know, that's what sin does. Whether it's the sin of idolatry, whether it's the sin of beginning to not listen to the voice of the Lord as he speaks to us in our lives, sin ruins and destroys. But you know what the good news is? Unlike them who were under the law, Jesus' life and work saves and it cleanses, and it restores, and we get out of relationship with the Lord, and it spares us. In fact, here, he says two times you'll perish, and Jesus says to us in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that he who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Hey, just like Israel, we sin. We fall into forms of idolatry at times, put things before the Lord and begin to give attention and devotion to that more than Jesus. At times, we, like Israel, we don't obey the voice of the Lord. We know what the Holy Spirit says to us, but for whatever selfish reason, we ignore what God says. But the wonderful thing is, through Jesus, there's forgiveness, there's restoration, there's help.